Well, we have come and we have passed the pivot point in Mark's gospel where Jesus now has set his face like flint to Jerusalem knowing that when he gets there he will be handed over, tortured, crucified and on the third day rise again and he's told his disciples that twice already. He'll tell them that one more time before it happens because he needs to make them understand the battle that has been engaged. Remember, Peter has already said that Jesus is the Messiah, but his idea of his Messiahship is still the worldly understanding of what this Messiah will do. And so the battle, if there is one that Peter is thinking about, is a battle with a sword, But Jesus knows that this battle is so very different than the battles the Messiah's forebear, King David, waged. They must understand, his disciples must get to understand the divine strategy of absolute humility and of dying to overcome death and sin but they aren't there yet. Um, Yet again, on the road last week, uh, if you remember what had happened, is, is that they were arguing amongst themselves as to who was going to be the greatest when Jesus became king. And Jesus had to take them to task about that. He's trying to show them a different way. Well, this week we hear that um, John comes up and and somebody has been casting out demons in Jesus' name. And the disciples have said, you can't do that. You're not with us. You're not with the in crowd. You're not following with us, Jesus. And so they say this to Jesus evidently thinking that he's going to pat them on the back and say, no, absolutely, unless we're in the inner circle, they shouldn't be casting out demons. But what does he say? He says, no, don't stop them from doing that. No one who does a miracle or a work of power in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Whoever is not against us is for us. See the same dynamic happening here in the Old Testament reading? Um, Moses has had it with the people. It's a big burden for him to bear and he takes it to the Lord and the Lord says, okay, appoint 70 and take them to the tent of meeting outside the camp, and I'll take some of my spirit that I've given to you and spread it amongst them so that they will have wisdom to be leaders, to take off some of the burden off of you. And so these people go out, these leaders go out, but apparently two who were registered amongst the 70 as leaders um, didn't go to the tent of meeting. And so God's spirit falls upon them anyway because they have been set apart for that ministry. And so all of a sudden, Eldad and Medad are in the middle of the camp prophesying. 
And somebody runs up to Moses and said, look what they're doing. He's tattling on them. And Joshua, who is still really young at this point in time, will become such an amazing great warrior submitted to the Lord, turns to Moses and says, stop them doing it. Do you want me to go and tell them off? And Moses says, no. Would that all God's people were filled with the Spirit and could prophesy. Well, down through the ages, we've done that a little bit in the church, haven't we? Unless you're, you know, an Episcopalian or unless you're X, Y, or Z, then uh, we should tell them to stop doing what they're doing. They should not be preaching God's word. But Jesus says, whoever is not against us is for us. Are you jealous for my sake, asks Moses. The same could be said of us if we have that same attitude. Jesus does not. He says, whoever is not against us is for us. Because there's a battle. There are battles to be won. There is a war being waged. And Jesus says he needs all of the people engaged in spreading the light of the kingdom. See, when we go out there, we're to be gospel spreaders. It's not about brand marketing. We're not marketing the Episcopal brand when we go out there or the Roman Catholic brand or the Baptist brand or the Presbyterian brand. What are we doing? The Evangelion is good news. It's the good news of Jesus Christ who brings life out of death. And so when we go out into the world, it's Jesus whom we proclaim and him crucified and raised again. There is a war going on. Jesus needs his disciples to see that and that it's not a war won by swords. He needs all the troops available, every single one who is pointing away from themselves and who are pointing to Christ. Anyone who is pointing people to Christ is doing the work of an evangelist of spreading the good news of Christ, of spreading the love of God that we have seen in the sacrifice of God, in the sacrifice on the cross for ourselves. Are we spreading that good news? Because there's a fight afoot and the enemy is at work and we are called into a fight. We're not to just be passive disciples. God's at work in the world. The enemy of our souls is at work in the world and there's a choice to be made, Jesus says, 
Don't let any part of you make you stumble. Of course, he's not meaning that you've literally got to cut out off your foot or your, or your hand or gouge out your eye. But if anything causes you to stumble from the path that he is leading you on, it's better to go through life maimed than not to get into eternal life and not to step into the kingdom way of Jesus. N.T. Wright puts it this way, there's a war on, the kingdom is breaking in, sacrifices are required, and to think otherwise is to risk total ruin. See, the word there that's translated hell is actually Gehenna. It was the rubbish pit outside of the walls of Jerusalem, and it was always smoldering. So it was this image of just rubbish and refuse and smoldering fires that are going on that Jesus is using. He wants the disciples to know that thinking about their own honor or exclusivity is going to make them stumble and maybe cause them to stumble off the kingdom path. And he needs them in the battle. He needs them to know that they are entering into a time of deep discipleship and sacrifice. And that they have to be warriors in the battle, single-mindedly looking at their commander-in-chief, Jesus. See, the same is true for us. Discipleship requires sacrifice. It requires weapons. And one of the weapons is absolute, solid, unshakable trust in the commander-in-chief, even if the evidence is not seen. I'm listening to a book on audio, on Audible right now that's called Evidence Not Seen. It's about missionaries before uh, World War II broke in in New Guinea. And they were spreading the gospel into the darkest parts of that country where there was cannibalism, where there was war. And they brought people to know the love of Christ. Those who are not against us are for us. What's the other weapon besides absolute trust in the commander-in-chief? The other weapon is the weapon of prayer. It's that amazing divine mystery that James closes out his epistle talking about. He's talked throughout the epistle about active faith, not about passive faith, not just about receiving uh, grace, not about just receiving salvation for ourselves, but faith in action. And he closes all of that epistle out by speaking about prayer, the place where the battle is fought. You know, I've seen advertised, but I haven't actually seen it yet, uh, the movie War Room. That speaks volumes, doesn't it? The War Room is the place where the battle is fought. In England, uh, in Westminster, still, you can go and visit it today, are the war rooms of Winston Churchill and all of the military advisors, his cabinet, 
in, um, in bunkers deep underground. And it looks exactly like it did when they were meeting together against Nazism that was crossing over all of the boundaries. The darkness that seemed to be invading Europe and getting closer and closer to English shores. And they were there in this bunker and the, and the walls were, had maps all the way around them and pins in the maps and where troop movements were, where the Axis powers were, where the Allies powers were, and there was ticker tape always running to say with news as about more troop movements. Skirmishes won, battles won, battles lost, retreats, advancement, offenses, defenses. All of that was going on in this war room. The Christians' war room is where they go to pray. Might be a prayer closet, it might be a prayer chair, might be on your knees by your bed, it might be anywhere, but that's where the Christian battle is won. You know, on my Facebook page this week, there was uh, this wonderful um, uh, photo, actually, two photos. The top photo was a line of little kittens kind of wandering along, and the caption was going into the prayer room. And underneath it was the photo of a pride of lions strutting out, strutting out from the prayer room. It says, coming out of the prayer room. Is that a wonderful image? We go in meek and mild, knowing that in our own strength we can do nothing. But submitted to the Lord in prayer, we are strengthened. We are given the courage to go out and engage the enemy but we engage the enemy primarily with the weapon of prayer. James says, we are to pray when in trouble. We are to praise or pray through song when we are happy. We are to pray in faith and anoint with holy oil in the name of the Lord people who are sick. And prayer, says James, is most effective and the most powerful through the righteous person. Well, that doesn't mean somebody who is righteous in themselves. Of course, we none of us are. It's the righteousness of Christ within us. And how does that righteousness flow freely within us? But if we turn and repent of our sins, confess our sins, receive the forgiveness of our sins and enter into Christ's righteousness and then prayer is powerful and effective through the one who is righteous. But we are all called into service into the service and into the battle through prayer. Again, James, who's been talking about faith in action, ends his epistle in this peon of prayer because we can only act in God's way we only know how to interpret that ticker tape that's coming over when we listen to God's voice in prayer so that we're acting not on our own, in our own thoughts about what is good, 
but about what God considers good and for us to be doing. You know, over my desk in the mail come so many good things that we could be supporting, that we could be involved in, that we could be doing, that we could show forth faith in action, but not all of them are things that God wants us to be doing right now. And the only way to discern that is to take it to the Lord in prayer and say, is this a good God thing for us at the moment in our own personal lives, in our lives together as a church? But we are to pray about everything. You've heard me say before that heaven's dimension, God's realm and rule, where God's power is at work, heaven's dimension, was brought into earth's dimension, this earthly fallen dimension, with the incarnation of Jesus. And it came in full power on the cross and through the empty grave. In the resurrection, the full power of heaven's realm is at work. And it's at work in us through our baptism into that same death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us. And so heaven's dimension and earth's dimension is within each one of us who have been baptized into Christ. And Paul says there's a war going on within ourselves. We're pulled into um, operating out of our earthly, fleshly selves, and yet our spirit selves, our heavenly selves, are also at war against that. And which are we going to uh, give over to? Which are we going to allow our wills to go towards? We're going to allow the Holy Spirit to really take over, to transform us into the image of Christ so that the heavenly dimension is foremost in our lives. Because when we pray, we're making heaven's dimension and the power of heaven to come into earth's dimension, into all of the needs in earth's dimension. Again, N.T. Wright puts it this way, heaven and earth meet when in the spirit someone calls on the name of the Lord and the person praying stands with one foot in the place of trouble, sickness and sin and the other foot in the place of healing, forgiveness and hope. See, we stand in prayer with one foot in heaven's dimension and one foot in earth's dimension. Through being made clean in Christ, we are the conduit through which God's power in his heavenly realm impacts all the needs that there are in this heavenly dimension, in this earthly dimension. If Jesus if, as Jesus is trying to teach his disciples by following him, they have signed up for duty in a war zone, which he is, so have we. By being a Christian, that's automatically what has happened. We have signed up for duty in a war zone. We are in trench warfare. Becoming followers of Jesus is not just about self-fulfillment 
although we will find the most fulfillment in our lives by truly following him. It's not just about being thankful that we've been saved and have by his sacrifice moved from death to life. That is true. That has happened to us. It's not about a passive, privatized spirituality. I'm just all right, Jack. I'll let everybody else deal with themselves. I've been saved. I'm fine. It's not about that. It's not just about the assurance of life after death when we die. It is about trench warfare now. We've been called in as warriors, every single one of us. God is at work in our world and so is the enemy of our souls. And God has called and equipped us, each and every one of us, to be warriors on the front lines. Imagine the impact. Imagine the impact on this world if every single Christian spent half an hour in their war room every single day. Because that's where the battle is fought, in prayer. If, like in the war bunker in Westminster, we had the map of the world in our mind's eye, And every time something happened on the TV screen, instead of being overcome or despairing, we prayed Christ-like into the darkness. What would happen if every newspaper article we read, instead of being tied into frustration and aggravation and anger and anxiety, we prayed Christ-like into the situation, into the darkness? What if every time we heard something going on in our community that upset us, that we prayed Christ's light into our community, into our neighborhood, into our family relationships, into our friendships, into any place of need wherever there is, because that's the weapon that the Lord has given us. And it is effectual. It is the most effectual weapon that we could have been given. Are we using it? Every Wednesday, there's a, there's a dedicated small group of people who meet to pray for the world for the places in crisis, for the refugees, for whatever has been coming over the news, for the church. That means the church across the world, the Dayaks in Borneo, uh, the people um, who are Christians in Syria, all peoples. Are we praying for all peoples to come to the light of Christ? to share the Evangelion, to be messengers of the good news. Because that is where the battles are fought. See, the war is won. We know that, right? That Jesus at the cross crushed the serpent underfoot. We know the end of the story. 
He is triumphant and he will return with the angel armies and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. But we live in the in-between time when heaven's realm has come in and we are participants in making that realm move into the world and we do that through prayer. So I ask you, Will you join me in your own war rooms? Will we be a people who are warriors for the Lord in our own places of prayer for the world, for the nation, for the community, for our neighborhoods, for our family and for our friends, wherever there is a need to bring Christ's light into the dark world and we will see the kingdom of light advance. Amen.